Hello everyone, it's Tom Slater here, editor of Spiked. We'll get into this episode of the Spike podcast in just one moment. But before we do that, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who's gone out and bought a copy of Brendan O'Neill's brilliant Spiked book, A Heretic's Manifesto. It's been great reading all of your emails, your glowing Amazon reviews. Thanks so much for getting behind it. The response with the reviews and the media has been brilliant as well. So if you haven't already purchased your copy of Brendan O'Neill's A Heretic's Manifesto, what are you waiting for? It's the book that comes highly recommended by Andrew Doyle, Julia Hartley Brewer, Michael Schellenberger, the former Prime Minister of Australia, Tony Abbott, and Spike readers everywhere. So to get your hands on a copy, stop what you're doing right now and go to amazon.com or amazon.co.uk to order yourself a copy. Thanks so much. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Tom Slater, editor of Spike, filling in for Fraser Myers this week. Joining me on the show today, we've got Laura Dodsworth, co-author of Free Your Mind. How are you doing, Laura? Very good. Very happy to be here. Also joining us today, um, returning to the podcast, Luke Gittos, legal columnist for Spiked, as well as the director of the Freedom Law Clinic. How are you doing, Luke? Very well, Tom. Thanks very much for having me. Coming up on today's show, the heatwave panic, the Farage Coots debanking scandal and the eco-hypocrisy of Just Stop Oil. So let's start with what's strangely become one of the big stories of the week, which is the weather, which is the fact that on the Mediterranean, there's been a spell of quite hot weather in July. Um, now, of course, it's been predicted that in various different places, the all-time record for temperature was going to be met. That ha- doesn't seem to have happened on the whole, but nevertheless, it's been a um, un- uh, particularly hot summer in a lot of places. But I don't think that has necessarily justified the sort of coverage it's produced, Laura. So we've had... A lot of incredibly fear-mongering coverage, places like Sky News, who are particularly attached to the eco-agenda, seeming to cherry-pick any kind of terrifying story, whether it's genuinely widespread and shocking things like the wildfires in Greece to just a car in LA that caught fire, presumably nothing to do with the climate. What have you made of the coverage of what is, at the end of the day, just a slightly hotter summer than usual in the Mediterranean. Um, this is all so very British talking about the weather. I love it. I'm finally on the Spiked podcast and we're talking about the weather. It's actually quite um, grey outside. And it is quite grey. Yeah, good. bring on Cerberus in, in <laughs> Canary Wharf. So, I mean, I could talk about this probably all day. You you guys could, could just go home. I mean, I think it's fascinating. You know, my last book, A State of Fear, um, was all about the fear-mongering to induce compliance with draconian lockdown rules but one of the parts that put shivers down my spine was when I interviewed I interviewed several spy b advisors but one of them really chilled my blood because when I asked what the plan was for getting the British public back to normal you know if you if you elevate people's fear if you're going to scare them what's your plan for bringing Mm. it back down because that's what you do in a laboratory situation if you were frightening people as part of a weird lab rat psychology experiment and he said what do you mean get people back to normal because we've we're going from covid into a climate crisis people have to reduce their carbon and i was like whoa you know the connection was being made even it was well not absolutely but all over the place i mean that for me was straight from the horse's mouth from a spy b advisor none of the spy b advisors i spoke to had any plan for de-escalating fear which i think is highly unethical one one part one part of it we should say with the the behavior the behavioral people the yeah the scientific pandemic how people respond to 
scientific pandemic influenza group on behavior, the social scientists who advise the government on questions to do with social science, so the psychology of locking down. Um, but it wasn't just him, of course. You know, at the time, Lindsay Hoyle said, well, people have shown they can change their habits for COVID, they can change their habits for climate. There were academics saying that the lockdown had created a window of malleability and it's time to change people's habits. I think the signs were there um, during the pandemic that this was coming. But then in 2021, the Nudge Unit, which at the time was partnered by the government, wrote an absolutely astonishing report with Sky, which is a licensed broadcaster, about how to use the power of TV, that's the title of the report, to make people decarbonise their lifestyle. I mean, it suggested doing things like inserting storylines in types of programs and some of them were just exactly the kinds of things that nerds in glasses who think about psychology will come up with you could insert a storyline about recycling for a family into a comedy oh, that's that's quite the gauntlet throw we're going to make that funny um DIY product- show <laughs> i mentioned at one point product placement news segments right so this brings me to the sky news coverage it is insane at the moment it is absolutely insane you know, and they're, they're using a number of behavioural psychology techniques to make us obsess about the weather. So, for instance, that that car on fire, they say car bursts into flames on LA freeway and blistering heat wave. Yes, but those things aren't necessarily connected. And they'll do that kind of cough, cough. Of course, we have no reason to believe. But even so, that- the line underneath, this isn't necessarily heat related. Yeah, but you're basically telling us it is, but then adding a caveat to cover yourself because you sound like such blundering fools. You know, we're not idiots. But this, this is something called the truth illusory effect. If you do the same thing over and over, just through the repetition, it will start to sink in. So I could watch one of these reports and go, oh, don't be so foolish. Otherwise, there'd be no cars in Saudi Arabia. Of course, you can have cars in the heat. Um, but, you know, maybe by the time I've seen my fifth car on fire or um, patch of scorched earth after a wildfire or someone who's melted or whatever, maybe I'll start believing it. So it has that effect. And of course, they keep using these figures, which I think we can say made up. Oh, it's predicted to be 48 degrees. Well, it's not 48 degrees yet. But then the number 48 sticks in your head. You're almost waiting for it to be 48. Or modelling. So we've seen heat-related deaths being modelled, i.e. made up. Because you can't gather the death registrations from all around Europe right now in real time and say there's people died of, of heat. But it's all about salience. They're trying to put the number into your head. So there's a lot of behavioural psychology tricks right now in the news on licensed broadcasters. And it's fascinating how they can all kind of... Um it's almost like they get a certain kind of fad between their teeth and they should all pursue it at the same time. But, and as you say, it's worth pointing out, the big story going into this week was all of these records are going to be broken. There was a particular focus on Death Valley in California where mm. the highest recorded temperature recorded is the word has ever been clocked, which I think was at 55 degrees and they thought it was going to reach something like 56. It hasn't. Also, it's worth pointing out that that original record was set back in like 1920 or whatever. So this idea that we've been on this clear kind of gradient towards the climate at the moment but it's also interesting how much they lump things together so you'll have the sky news live blog on the weather which have been all fire and brimstone and then they'll say there's also been floods in central europe even though even the ipcc has made pretty clear that in terms of climate change it's not going to influence those kinds of weather events does heat waves and so on according to them but luke you were actually in europe um in this terrifying um, smoldering wasteland this week um what was your impression of it from from italy where you were well i was in a very pleasantly temperate northern italy <laughs> and the locals there did not seem at all uh, uh, bothered by the temperature it was around 32 to 33 degrees so not unusually hot and the weather was a mix between hot and stormy as it always is um, and i think there is um, a sense in which especially in britain we are generally less prepared for 
extreme events of any kind than they are in, in Italy and elsewhere on the continent. You know, there is a general sense uh, elsewhere that people need to be prepared for certain events which um, might occur outside of someone's control, like you know these, these weather events and so on. I think it is worth emphasising that, you know, heat is a problem in Italy. You know, it does lead to a number of deaths every year. And that's, uh, uh, you know, we have seen, for example, this week, uh, hospital admissions being very, very high. I mean, it's, it makes complete sense that heat causes problems. You know, in Greece, we've seen uh, crackdown because people, uh, their houses are burning down. You know, Spain, the soil getting very hot to, to the extent that it could have an impact on uh, food supply, etc. All of these things are real. Yeah, I've got to we say, just need to, you so, can't link to houses burning down. You can't link houses burning down to the heat. Well, I, I'm I'm not a scientist, and I'll be quite frank about that. I but it does not. Um, I do think heat waves cause problems, and I think that part of the reason they cause problems is infrastructural. So what we really need to be talking about is if it's correct that man-made climate change will lead to, for example, longer and more intense heat waves, which I think is perfectly plausible. We need to learn how to accommodate that and adapt. Um, and I think that's um, something that, you know, political leaders across Europe are neglecting to do, to learn how to adapt to the changes in climate that are going to occur. So I think we should have that discussion. But I think Laura's right in the sense that what we're seeing at the moment is, an op is a kind of apocalyptic approach to this problem. And that, I think, is drawn, you know, we've seen that the World Health Organization draw direct um, comparisons between heat and covid saying that both have equal or, or, or comparable uh, potential to disrupt um, health uh, delivery. And it's interesting because um, they're both talked about in very similar ways. You know, that it's true to say that uh, both are treated as this kind of amorphous, out-of-control threat to our humanity. And I just think that says a lot more about the way we approach what are manageable problems than it does about the genuine threat. Can I just say something about, um, to, to build on that, you know, if we're talking about heat being a problem, well, that's fair enough, but there's a really fundamental dishonesty in this approach because we don't talk, and I don't mean you, I mean the news, we don't talk about the problems of weather in the winter. So cold kills multiples more than heat and we don't talk about that. So we're not contextualising these so-called heat-related deaths which are modelled and not actual because we don't talk about cold-related deaths. Now, um, my my mum's quite poorly. She's elderly. She's on a state pension. In the winter, she spends a very long time in bed to stay warm. We don't talk about all the old people who die of the cold. So there's a real fundamental dishonesty in this approach. And I think that's what really bothers me about it. It's not because our public health authorities or the newscasters are really concerned with people dying of extreme weather conditions. Otherwise, they would talk about the problems in all directions, but they don't. They focus on the heat because it serves the net zero agenda. In fact, in the winter, conversely, they'd be saying you need to turn your heating up, but they don't want you to do that because they want you to turn your heating down. Do you remember it was 19 degrees was the recommendation last winter? I think that's an important point. There was a really good Matt Ridley piece in The Telegraph making exactly the point about temperature, which is it seems like, particularly in a place like Britain, the main impacts and um Climate change seems to have been much milder winter nights, which has been positive in terms of um, keeping people alive. And even in places like India and Italy, mm. far more people will die as a consequence of the of the cold rather than the heat. But as you say, it's just because it doesn't fit the narrative. It doesn't really get talked about, I suppose. But Luke, why is it that we just seem to have this kind of apocalyptic approach to absolutely everything? Not to give too broad a question, but I think that, that point you made there is, is so right as so far as that kind of it's apocalypse from now on. 
is something which certainly preceded the pandemic, but it's definitely been turbocharged since then, when you say. Well, weirdly, it reminded me of the first weeks after the invasion of Ukraine, because we felt there was a lot of discussion around the possible nuclear threat. And I thought, well, that is kind of understandable in the context of what was going on at that time. But I then remember even six to eight months after, it was almost every day that people were monitoring the likelihood of a nuclear apocalypse. And I do just think there is a tendency now to believe the worst about humanity's ability to deal with problems. There is a hunger for um, an apocalyptic worldview. As to what is behind it, I think it's um, partly driven by a kind of a, 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 a wish uh, uh, to, to, to do down humanity's impact on the world and, to, do, and to, to present humanity as fundamentally a threat to itself. And it's really interesting when we talk about um, man-made climate change um, you know, people, you know, 97% of scientists believe that, you know, climate change is happening and it's because of the human impact. But of course, we never talk about what that human impact is. You know, massive industrialization lifting millions of people out of poverty across the world. Um, the impact of human beings on people's lives has been huge and, and transformative over the last century. And you almost want to ask people, well, what, you know, what would have happened had we not had this impact on the world? We would still be in living in a kind of pre-carbon, deindustrialized globe where millions and millions of more people would be living in poverty. So I do think it is driven by this bleak way of understanding human beings' impact in general and a kind of apocalyptic view of what we're capable of. Definitely. Um, we should move on to the other big story of the week, which is the latest developments in the battle between Nigel Farage and the very upmarket bank Coots. Um, a good few weeks ago now, Nigel Farage went public with these accusations that the um, bank that he was banking with, both for his personal account and his business account, had called him out of the blue and said that they were going to close him down. Um, as a consequence of this, he was also goes to try and open accounts elsewhere, gets turned away by, I think, the running total at the moment is 10 other banks. He set forward a kind of series of reasons as to why he thought this had happened, that this was potentially politically motivated. Also, these politically exposed persons' reg regulations which seem to be incredibly onerous, combined with the, the fact that various people, particularly in Parliament, had been saying some very defamatory things about it, um, which he thought maybe kind of combined. And what was interesting was that immediately the response from the BBC, from The Guardian, from a lot of people on Twitter was like, oh, he's obviously making this up, even though it's really plausible what he was accusing. The thing that's changed this week is that a, a dossier has been compiled, has been um, retrieved. Uh, Farage has done a subject access requests as they're called about all the information that they had on him and what's abundantly clear now is that uh, a lot of deliberation a lot of research and meeting did take place at this bank coots where and it's laid out in black and white in this dossier they said he wasn't aligned with the values of coots i don't know what the values of coots are maybe we can get into that um, essentially recycling all of the worst and probably most extreme criticisms one could level with nigel Farage that he's a, he's a trade in xenophobia and hate and so on even dredging up accusations from his youth or really kind of scraping the barrels up. And it's just laid out in black and white what seemed quite plausible to, to begin with. The fact that there has obviously been an element of political discrimination that's been creeping in, even with banks, even with this most basic of services that people should enjoy. And yet there's still, Laura, this temptation on the part of people, particularly on the centre-left, I suppose, or the left, to just say, oh, this is a, still a non-story. Well, I think, I think it's a huge story. I think it's deeply disturbing. Um, I think that there's a theme that runs through all of your stories tonight, actually, which is polarisation. 
you're increasing tribalism, us and them. And it's actually something that we should all constantly be striving to watch out for, not just from a kind of peace hippie perspective that we should all be getting along and advancing understanding, but it's just ultimately not good for society. I thought that some of the attitudes to Nigel Farage were really disgusting, actually. I was talking to somebody at a party the other week and they said, oh, well, we don't care if Nigel Farage has lost his bank account, do we? And I thought, well, hang on a minute. I think we do. I think we care if anybody's lost their bank account. And of course, it wasn't just Nigel Farage. He's blown this whole story into prominence. But this has been a, um, it's been a campaign of the Free Speech Union for a while because other people have been you know, debanked through PayPal as well as bank accounts. Us for them are a campaign group for children which arose out of lockdown. They're totally non-partisan and they were debanked on PayPal. The Free Speech Union was. This is about um, institutions basically being captured by kind of a woke ideology. And if you as the customer don't conform to these unspoken woke shibboleths, you could just be cut off at the knees. So the lack of transparency around it is really alarming. I mean, honestly, if it's Nigel Farage this month, it could be me in six months for goodness knows what, what for for perhaps being a climate denier. Now, I'm not a climate denier. Don't quote me on this. But it's the same kind of thing, isn't it? You see, you've got the good people who um, follow all of these shibboleths and adhere to the dogma and do as they're told. They're the good people. And then the bad people who ask questions are the ones who get cut out of groups and societies. And that's what's happened to Nigel Farage. He hasn't he hasn't been a good adherent mm. to it, what feels like a religious dogma. So if you ask questions, it makes you bad. Mm -hmm. No, completely. And it's interesting the quite flimsy responses that we're seeing to this. So one people will say, well, they can, you see people on the left saying, well, this bank can do business with whoever it wants. It's a kind of strange defense of a, you know, huge corporate autonomy there from un, from some quite surprising people. You hear that trotted out. You hear people say, oh, this is no different from, you know, people just deciding who they're just going to do business with. What do you make with those kinds of arguments? I mean, it's odd where they're coming from in many respects, but also surely there are certain things which we just need as a baseline to be able to function in society. And surely we shouldn't let partisanship slip into it. Yeah, I remember the journalist Paul Mason appearing on Politics Live after the first story broke and speaking with absolute confidence that this was just banks following regulation and that there was nothing to see here and that it was all part of their adherence to the normal rules that were designed to defend us from money laundering. Um, and if you know anything about Coots, you know, I mean, you would have been able to tell that was probably quite unlikely because Coots is known as a high net worth bank, which... I don't think I'm defaming anyone here by saying it will adopt a degree of flexibility with its customers in order to keep their custom. You know, that's part of their selling point. Um, and they're also, you know, it's been widely reported now that they're also the banking organisation for some quite questionable people. They've been accused of laundering money for the Italian mafia. There is a list of very questionable people on on, 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 their, on their client list. Um, and I think you're right that it is remarkable that more people... Um, haven't come out and pointed out what an outrage this is because you know if this was a journalist on the left who had had their account cancelled their face would be on banners there'd be demonstrations there'd be murals everywhere you know give him his account back you know it would be the 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 story would be far better suited to them if this was someone on the left because it would be they'd be able to say this is capitalism trying to crack down on dissenters and all the rest of it 
it's because it's someone on the right that it doesn't quite fit that story. Um, there's some really strange details about this as well. You know, I've been following Andrew Neil's reporting of this, and he uh, tweeted today about a possible dinner meeting between um, a senior person at the BBC who was responsible for this story uh, and one of the senior people at Coots who was responsible for the decision. Um, you know, this looks like collusion in order to put forward a particular story. That might move on by the time this comes out as well, because there's been some sort of indication that some apology might be in the offing. Because I think it was yeah, Simon Jack from the BBC, who was the one who just quite credulously and uncritically reported Coots' original denial, which was to say this was about him not having enough money in his account, essentially, which this dossier actually explicitly pushes back on. Upends, and then also, as you were saying, it was um, the I think the individual in question is head of the NatWest group, but was sat next to him at a dinner the night before, and it's just that lack of. If nothing else, I'm not expecting Simon Jack at the BBC or particular journalists to you know rush to the barricades, but they should at least show a degree of curiosity and scepticism of the line that is just being delivered to them. Well, talk about how uh, the left is saying, oh, it's just banks doing business; they're private businesses; they can operate on on any terms they want. It's this is exactly what it's not. Because if this was straightforward business with rules that can be broken, they would be transparently published and Nigel Farage would have known what he'd done in advance of doing it. But it's not true. This is actually about people who don't like other people. So they may be completely happy with somebody who um, is more politically aligned to them but breaks rules in another area. You know, this is because he's a Brexiteer and the and Coots, uh, the, the staff, you know, are coming out as being very staunch Remainers. This is all about not liking people and wanting to punish them. So it's the absolute opposite of doing business. Finally, on banks doing business, I'd say that actually they should be, they should be legally obliged to give people bank accounts. I think, you know, in today's world, you can't go around trading in magic beans and bartering. You know, everybody needs a bank account in order to function in modern society. And banks should not allow but they should not be allowed to end people's bank accounts. There should be maybe there should be a state bank for the people who can't get the 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 private bank's business. But you shouldn't be able to take away someone's bank account. Otherwise, you're you're it's it's the modern form of exile or banishment. It's another way of casting them out. Yes, it's unpersoning, definitely. I mean, I, I think that was that really summed it up. And Luke, what do you make just in closing on this particular issue of this idea that banks have values as well? <laughs> There's one thing I was quite <laughs> curious because. You saw this in the dossier. It says he doesn't align with our values. It also has this fascinating passage about how um, we essentially need to exclude him in the pursuit of inclusivity. Many people have been sharing images of the front of Coots' main headquarters in London, which, of course, has been to dress up in the Progress Pride flag. Does this story show that these banks actually kind of but actually believe their own kind of BS, that they actually kind of hold to these kinds of things? Because surely they must have known there was going to be some sort of backlash to this and yet they still seem to have dug in they still seem to have stuck to their story pretty firmly i mean does this is this an indication that um they actually this kind of woke capitalism thing is a bit more sincere than some people might not want i think i think wokeism and the the, the kind of the, the the woke ideology is a very easy way for cap for big banks to wash what they're doing um i just encourage people i mean I've, you see more and more of these woke adverts for banks nowadays hsbc i remember um has you know especially during pride month you know all banks seems obligatory to plaster its um uh, stuff with 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 uh, with logos and things like that but every time you see that just go and look up some of the things that these banks are actually doing in the world you know raising a pride flag whilst assisting the royal family of saudi arabia a place where homophobia is kind of absolutely rife um 
you know, think about actually what these banks are doing on the ground. Coots is just one of them, you know. Um, it's a very easy way for them to distract from some of the things that they actually do. And I think um, when when they talk about their values, at best it's contradictory, at worst it's completely intellectually dishonest. Also, businesses can't have values. I'm really fed up with them saying they can. Now, a bank is um, it's a building. It's a collection of servers. It's a place that you store your money. You pay and you get interest rates and they look after it securely. That's all it is. People have values. The people who work there didn't like Nigel Farage. Banks can't have values. And yet, still they're clinging on. It's be fascinating to see how this unfurls. Um, we should move on to our final story, which is really just sort of checking in with Just Stop Oil, sort of permanently on our social media feeds and in the news um, after the kind of more kind of shock and awe tactics in relation to various big summer events. Um, they've kind of gone back to their day job, which is these slow marches through London. They've also been spraying orange paint over various government departments, as well as Policy Exchange Think Tank, who they've got a beef with, presumably because they've published a report that they disagree with. Um, but it's also, look, the temperature's been turning up a little bit. There's been a few clashes on the street. There was this video that um, has been doing the rounds this week of a driver whose car seems to have crashed. He's got his pregnant wife in there. It's unclear as to how this crash came about, but he goes and accosts one of the men there. I kind of sense that, you know, this was almost something like this was probably bound to happen in some respects. But, you know, where do you think we're at now with Just Stop All? Every, obviously, everyone is, um, their, their patience, everyone's patience has worn thin with them, and yet they're still going. <laughs> Are we just? Is this just going to be us forever? I think there is a. There was a time at which I thought just stop oil could do pretty much what they wanted, and the police wouldn't intervene. I think that is actually starting to change. We are seeing prosecutions of just stop oil. They are going to prison, um, and I think that. Um, I, I think I share your view that the public attitude is changing to an extent where I think we will see. Hopefully, I think we should see more police intervention against these protests because, as we've said on this podcast before. The right to demonstrate is not an absolute. You have no right to disrupt the working lives of hundreds of, you know, millions of people in a working metropolis in order to express your opinion. That's not um, what demonstration is and nor should it be. So I think we will see a greater pushback um, fr from a kind of law enforcement perspective. And I think we are seeing a greater pushback from the public as well, who, you know, most of them might be sympathetic to the less extreme version of what Just Stop Oil want, which is, you know, a more green future. I think most, you know, some people will will will, uh, you know, agree with that message. But it's the way that they go. I mean, as we've said before, these methods are just not being stomached, and there is a concern that people will take the law into their own hands more and more if they don't see the kind of law and order response that they want. Yeah, I mean, the police have to step up, or or people get frustrated, don't they? Now, you wrote a great article this week. Can I can I can I reference your article? No, please. Can I do that yeah. for you. I mean, it's been a busy week because. My book came out mm -hmm. for your mind. There it is. But I loved Available your article this week stuff. about all the blatant hypocrisy mm. of the protesters. You know, you'd like you said in your article, you don't have to do a great deal of investigative journalism to find they've all gone on flashy holidays. <laughs> you know, they don't mind at all um, flying to the other side of the world for three weeks somewhere exotic and then come back and demonstrate about oil. Well, one of my bugbears, you're, you're going to have to excuse me as a woman for having noticed this, but how many of them have got coloured hair, like mm. pink hair or blue hair or whatever? Like that process of dyeing your hair is really bad for fish. Yes, I've got highlights. I'm doing it as well, but I'm not out there protesting with any of them. <laughs> so, you know, they, the problem with these kinds of people is that they're pushing for a world that they will not want to live in. Mm -hmm. So if they want to go back to some Turner-esque world, constable world, pre-industrial world, 
where there have never been any fossil fuels. They're going to have to live in the dark, in the cold. They won't be able to dye their hair pink. They won't be wearing any nylon or trainers. They're always wearing trainers. They won't like the world that they're cheering on. And so they're hypocrites. They're saying they want everybody else to change their lifestyle. But we don't see them change their lifestyle. And it's, it's top I know to I can't speak well. for all of them, but there's just been enough cases now mm. of this blatant hypocrisy. Exactly. I'm sure, say, like Roger Hallam, the guy with the ponytail, who um, is the kind of ringleader of all these people, I'm sure like he would probably be quite content in a little yurt or something somewhere with a little heater. But I think you're right, Laura, I mean, not least because I've made the point in the piece, but it's just the reason that you see so much hypocrisy this week with the, the woman who threw the confetti over George Osborne is kind of just up oil linked in a sense went on this expensive holiday. One of the co-founders of Extinction Rebellion was found to have gone on this um, jet set retreat to Costa Rica as like a psychedelics retreat, costing thousands of pounds. You know, we actually, she claims that's where some of the ideas were formed, which might tell us something. But yeah, there is, it's the, the world that they're trying to promote, to the extent that they have thought about it, it would be miserable. Lower horizons, you can't go anywhere, you have to put up with your lot. The planet comes before actually humanity and so on it's a really miserable existence and i think that's one of the things which has been quite useful about just stop oil um is that they've kind of shown how extreme this agenda actually is it isn't just about things being a little bit greener or us trying to be a little bit more responsible whatever that might mean but it's about something a lot more radical you know it is about really trying to reverse mo the modern era in a weird sort of sense you know it's a lot deeper than i, I think some people get convinced they'd like it mm, no, i don't think they'd like it at all and i think that's I think that's common with people who push any of these sort of totalitarian ideologies. Like the people who were cheering on Nigel Farage losing his bank account. Well, if that becomes commonplace, they won't like it either. Because you get into a world of purity spirals where no one's going to be good enough for the bank's values. And, and Luke, just to close, it, we were always kind of talking about what might turn the tide on this particular issue, not least because you know, Just Stop Oil's antics notwithstanding, a lot of the kind of gr a softer version of the sort of policies that they promote are pretty much embraced across the political spectrum as far as getting rid of fossil fuels and really trying to you know roll back a lot of our kind of industrial production and so on um but could there be some light at the end of the tunnel because of the fact that surely at some point the government are going to have to wake up to the fact that this kind of net zero dream is a, is a fantasy really particularly in the context of a cost of living crisis a war in europe and so on and also aren't just stop oil just the perfect ambassadors against their own cause as far as turning the public off of it. Do you think you will start to see a bit more sanity on this issue as a consequence of the uh, the political environment, but also just the kind of economic environment we find ourselves in? Yeah, I'd like to believe so. I'd like to believe that, at least among the political class, there is some awareness that people's priorities are not the environment and just up oil at the moment, that there are more real-world pressures that are coming to bear on people's lives that they're going to have to start taking a lot more seriously. I mean, it's worth noting just... I would, I would use the phrase eye-wateringly posh all of these demonstrators are. that when, Whenever you hear them speak, whenever you read their names, it's almost comical, the level of um, privilege that they come. A new one this way, Eben Lazarus. Eben Lazarus. Yes, yeah, to add to Edred Whitt Whittingham and Indigo Rumbelow. I mean, Obviously. keeping track of them. Just I don't think they're real. I think we've actually entered some kind of alternate reality. <laughs> well, we're, in, we're, in some, we're in some other kind like of dimension. Some, yeah. It's just, where, where did they come from? process but I think that that is useful in the sense that the more they um, disrupt normal people's lives the more they show contempt for the kind of activities that normal people enjoy the more they show themselves up to be completely out of touch with ordinary people and completely out of touch with the ordinary concerns that are governing people's lives 
Thank you for listening to the Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.